This is Podco Media Networks. Hello and welcome to the Peace Love Plants podcast. I am your host, Marco Knox, a.k.a. the Phytogenic Chef. This week, the president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, Dr. Neil Barnard, joins the show. And we get to talk about his latest book, Your Body in Balance. The information and evidence that Dr. Barnard presents in his book is not only eye-opening, it's important for everyone to understand. As you'll soon hear, food is more than just fuel for your body. It literally affects our hormones and our health. We dive into the science behind how conditions like infertility, weight gain, menopausal symptoms, breast and prostate cancers, erectile dysfunction, and even mood disorders can be affected by and improved by simple diet changes. While I was studying plant-based nutrition at Cornell, I recall listening to Dr. Barnard discuss his numerous research studies investigating the effects of diet on diabetes, including a groundbreaking study of dietary interventions in type 2 diabetes that paved the way for viewing type 2 diabetes as a potentially reversible condition for many patients. He blew me away with his work that includes more than 90 scientific publications and 20 books. In fact, it's so impressive that he is the editor-in-chief of the Nutrition Guide for Clinicians, a textbook made available to all U.S. medical students. You get the idea. Dr. Barnard is the real deal, and his mission is saving and improving human and animal lives through plant-based diets and ethical and effective science research. So, let's talk about your body and balance, the new science of food, hormones, and health with Dr. Neil Barnard. Dr. Neil Barnard, welcome to the Peace Love Plants podcast, my friend. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. You're very welcome. So I just finished your last book, Your Body in Balance, The New Science of Food, Hormones, and Health. And wow, that book is full of life-changing information that everyone really needs to hear. Which, by the way, I see your social posts and know that you are hard at work doing lectures. I love your boots-on-the-ground approach, getting the message out to as many people as possible. You're a road warrior, Dr. Barnard. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I have to say it's new information because up until now, people have thought, okay, uh, food affects your weight or your cholesterol or diabetes. But who knew that foods could affect something like menstrual cramps or fertility or endometriosis or erectile dysfunction. And so I wanted to, to really get the word out for people who are dealing with these things or people who have family members who, who are. That's beautiful. And we're going to dive into a lot of those subjects. Before we do, I was following your social posts I just mentioned, I believe. Are you in Southern California right now, by chance? I'm headed there later this afternoon. Later this afternoon. Torrance, right? You got an engagement there? Yeah, I'm in Portland at the moment. I'm going to be in Torrance, uh, California, in the LA area this afternoon and uh, San Diego tomorrow. That's great. I tell you what, getting after it. So you've <laughs> you've authored a lot of best-selling books. I stopped counting after twenty. I mean, how many of these do you have out now? Oh, who's counting? Is it's somewhere <laughs> somewhere in that neighborhood? But the reason that I do a book is because there's information that people are not aware of, and that I think is important, and that I get excited about, and so I try to turn it into really a prescription that a person could fill, so to speak. So your body in balance is about how foods affect hormones. And we have to explain what the heck hormones are. Everything from estrogen and testosterone to thyroid hormone and insulin, and, and then how your breakfast will change all that and either make you sicker or make you healthier. And then we have to put in recipes and things to make it work. And by the way, I have to brag about that. Lindsay Nixon joined me in making the recipes and she is phenomenal. And, um, 
gave us 65 recipes that are really terrific. And when she, I got to say, when she sent me the recipes, she sent me a note saying, Dr. Brenner, the diet change that you're recommending here in this book cured my menstrual cramps too. So I thought, okay, that's good. That's validation. If Lindsay had been doing the same, uh, same kind of thing, then, then it's got to be right. No doubt. I tell you what, when I switched over to a whole food plant-based vegan diet, all the things you mentioned in your book, I experienced as well, minus, of course, the menstrual cramps. But I mean, all the mood changes, all of it, it's just amazing and how quickly it was. And I want to get into that. So let's get into some of the research that you've published in your latest book. All the chapters really had my interest, but there were a few in particular that I want to discuss with you today. But before we do that, how did you discover that foods could help hormone-related problems? Where did that go? Well, it was it was kind of an accident, really. I was sitting at my desk and the phone rang, and it was a young woman who had cramps. Now, a lot of women have cramps, but they've kind of resigned themselves to this is just what it is to be a woman. And anyway, so for this particular, in this particular case, they were off the scale, like as they are for maybe one in 10 women where she couldn't go to work, she couldn't function. She had a business trip the next day. She says, you know, I I can't move. And so she wanted painkillers. And so I said, well, I can give you painkillers for a couple of days, but what are we going to do to stop this from happening next month and the month after that? And so I suggested to her two things. I said, how about for the next month, no animal products at all? And secondly, keep oils really low. And you might think, well, what the heck could any of this have to do with cramps? But she tried it and it was miraculous. Her period came with no cramps at all. So we then did a randomized clinical trial with Georgetown University testing this approach. And it not only improved cramps and just for some women knocked them out, but it also changed PMS symptoms, bloating and water retention moodiness all seemed to improve. And so anyway, that's what got us going. And when we were looking at, at why, why the heck would this work? The first reason is that you're not eating any cheese or any milk. And dairy products have estrogens in them that come from the cow. And in a woman's body, the estrogens will change the uterus. They thicken up the inner lining of the uterus. And if there's too much estrogen, it thickens up too much and it causes really bad cramping at the end of the month. But the other piece of this is that if your diet is only plants, vegetables and fruits and beans and whole grains, all that fiber or roughage helps your body to get rid of excess estrogens. So that's what I was thinking when I said, all right, how about no animal products? And for some reason, reducing the oils helps too. It helps minimize estrogens. And so anyway, we suddenly realized, okay, we're not just talking about cramps. We're talking about everything that hormones can affect. Endometriosis, PCOS, infertility issues. How many couples are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on fertility treatments? And then most importantly, hormone-related cancers, like breast cancer, prostate cancer. So I just got excited about the the possibilities here, and I wanted to make sure that people knew how to put this to work. That's fascinating. Amazing stuff. So this next subject is no laughing matter as many men struggle with it, but don't truly understand the root cause. Right. And that subject is erectile dysfunction. Walk me through what it really means and the role that nutrition plays in ED. Yeah, I have to say there's a scenario that plays out in just about every clinic, which is that a guy walks in and he's embarrassed. He says, you know, I'm having trouble and whatever. And and he's asking for a Viagra prescription and the doctor can write the Viagra prescription. And then the the patient takes it and leaves. And if the doctor is a good doctor, she or he is going to run after the patient and say, wait, we're not done. Please come back, sit down. And what the doctor has to explain is that the reason you've got erectile dysfunction, it's not performance anxiety, it's atherosclerosis. And the patient says, what are you talking about? And what the doctor explains is that cholesterol in the bloodstream is irritating the the artery walls. And so little blister-like, what are called atherosclerotic plaques, are forming in the arteries. 
and they're narrowing the artery so that blood no longer flows as well as it used to. And so the first place where this leads to symptoms is in the man's private parts because the arteries there are really narrow. And so if you've got artery disease, the man develops erectile dysfunction because he just doesn't have enough blood flow to get an erection. But here's what the doctor has to make sure the patient understands. If you've got erectile dysfunction, that's a sign that you've got artery disease down there, but you also have it in your heart. And you've got it in probably in the carotid arteries going to the brain. So you've got erectile dysfunction now, but in the next three to five years, you're going to have a heart attack or a stroke. So take your Viagra if you want, but it does not reverse any of this. What we need to do is go see the registered dietitian. And there's only one diet that reliably reverses artery narrowings. And that's a diet that does not have cholesterol in it and doesn't have animal products in it. So the beauty of this is, is that you've just spared that man a heart attack or stroke. And as a side effect is the erectile dysfunction often goes away on its own without medication. That's amazing. Why aren't more doctors talking about this? It seems like everyone's just flipping out the blue pill to everybody instead of, hey, you really need to take, there's a bigger problem here. There's a much bigger problem here. I have to say doctors are taking uh, cognizance of this, particularly cardiologists. The cardiology literature is now full of articles. They use the words canary in the coal mine. The yeah. erectile dysfunction is the canary in the coal mine, meaning it's a sign that you got a problem. And so, so cardiologists are now aware of it, but your rank and file doctor or you go on some of these medical things online, you know, just send me Viagra. They are, in my view, making a huge mistake. And frankly, I think one day you're going to see malpractice attorneys chasing doctors who brought in a person who they knew had atherosclerosis mm -hmm. and all they gave him was Viagra or Cialis or something. And they didn't sit down and tell him you're at really high risk for a potentially fatal event. That's amazing. It's amazing. So I think he answered this question, but I want you to expand upon it, if you will. Do you feel that nutrition should play a bigger role in the medical approach to all of everything, everything that's in your book? But in particular, just to back up to something you said a little bit ago, breast cancer and other hormone-related cancers. Yes, there is obviously an important role for medical treatments, for medications, and so forth. And people should not fire their doctor. You need a good, a good diagnostician, and you may well need regular treatments. However... The body has an amazing capacity to heal. And if we're not taking advantage of that, we're really running into big trouble. Let me give you an example. Thyroid conditions. A lot of people, and the thyroid gland is at the base of your neck. It makes thyroid hormone that gives you energy. And so you're feeling low energy. You're gaining weight. You're feeling even cold and your hair doesn't seem right and your skin doesn't seem right. And so the doctor says, I think I know what this is and does a blood test and you've got low thyroid. For most cases in the United States, it's an antibody reaction. Antibodies, these are protein torpedoes in your blood that are attacking the thyroid. And the evidence suggests that the trigger for that could be food. And the people who have the least risk of hypothyroidism in large epidemiologic studies are people who avoid dairy products and people who avoid meat products. And what we believe is happening is that the proteins in the meat and the dairy trigger the production of the antibodies that are attacking your thyroid. So what's the medical approach? You go in, you see the doctor, the doctor says, here's your prescription. Well, what about food? Nah, irrelevant. And that's true for so many other conditions. You mentioned breast cancer. Mm -hmm. It turns out that women who have been treated for breast cancer in the past, if they take advantage of soy products, I'm talking about soy milk and edamame and so forth, their risk of a recurrence, their risk of dying of their cancer is cut by about 30%. That's really important information. And doctors need to talk about that because women are, I think, often victimized by really bad information. And you'll see on online a soy 
could give you breast cancer because it has estrogens in it or whatever. The truth is exactly the opposite. Research studies have clearly shown that soy helps reduce the risk of getting it. It helps reduce the risk of dying of cancer. And same for men for prostate cancer as well. Soy is uh, preventive. So doctors must think beyond their prescription pad and get this information out to the patients who really need it. No doubt. I'm really glad you said that because a lot of men have that misconception as you touched on it. You know, eating soy is going to cause breasts to grow in men. I mean, that is such a myth. You've just debunked it basically, right? Well, go to the beach on a hot summer day. <laughs> and if you see a heavyset guy, he's taking his shirt off and he's got breast development, what the men's magazines call man boobs. And mm-hmm. go right up to him and say, excuse me, how much tofu have you been eating this past week? You I'm know? not doing that. <laughs> Here's my point. He's going to say tofu. I didn't eat tofu. You know, how about edamame? How about tempeh? How about miso? He doesn't eat any of that stuff. So his man boobs did not come from eating soy products. The reason that he's got breast development is that he's eating burgers and he's eating pizza and he's eating a lot of junk that have caused him to gain weight. And as he has gained weight, the body fat, fat cells make estrogen. And the more body fat you have in a man's body, it converts testosterone his male hormones, the fat cells convert testosterone to estrogens. So he now has female hormones that are going to do a couple things. They're going to cause breast enhancement. They're also going to shut down his sperm count. It's an amazing thing, not just weight gain, but also cheese. Cheese consumption has been going up gradually for the past hundred years and sperm counts have dropped by about 50 or 60%. And what we speculate is that the estrogens in the dairy are affecting men too. There's a lot of evidence that men who avoid cheese have better sperm counts than men who eat it. So, um, no, Hank, who's got man boobs, he did not get it from eating tofu. (laughs) Hank, I like it. I like it. (laughs) So this next one really hits home for me, and it's, it's mood disorders. And I'll use myself as an example here. Prior to switching to a whole food plant-based lifestyle, you know, I had some moodiness. I was, I was tough to be around sometimes. I'm happy to say that that is no longer, but what role do foods play in depression and even anxiety and other mood-related issues? Yeah, this is something we stumbled on completely accidentally. We were doing a research study with Geico, the car insurance company, because their headquarters is near ours and they have a huge building with thousands of employees. And so we instituted a completely vegan diet at work and it meant vegan foods at the cafeteria, which by the way, was a little bit of a new thing for them. In one of the Geico facilities we worked at, they were featuring a vegan burger with bacon and cheese. <laughs> no, we had to tell them, no, don't do that. Anyway, they figured it out and they did really well. And people at Geico who went vegan, they lost weight. If they had diabetes, it got better. It was exactly the healthy diet you'd expect. However, we noticed one other thing. We had been doing paper and pencil tests for a range of symptoms. And we noticed specifically depression was lifting and anxiety was lifting and going along with it, job absenteeism was diminishing among the people who had changed their diet. And at first we thought, okay, that's just a fluke, but it wasn't. Other researchers have looked at this and they've seen that when you compare people following plant-based diets, their moods are better. And I do think we need more research here. And I'm not suggesting that people should cancel their psychiatry appointment or anything like that. But plant-based foods do two things. The first is that they are anti-inflammatory, meaning your white blood cells make inflammatory compounds, trying to knock out viruses and bacteria, but they do this in response to foods too. And inflammation harms brain function. Depression is now viewed as in part an inflammatory disease. And so if you're using a diet that reduces inflammation, your mood is going to feel better. But the other thing, and this is a really the cool thing in research now, is the microbiome, the bacteria in your gut. You can have healthy bacteria in your gut that make 
healthy compounds like short chain fatty acids that change your body chemistry. If you are following a meaty diet, you foster the growth of unhealthy gut bacteria and people feel noticeably worse. The, when you switch to a completely plant-based diet, within about two weeks, you will see a noticeable change in the bacterial colonies in your gut, changing toward healthy ones. And we believe that that is a big part of the reason that mood gets better. I mean, plus the fact you're losing weight and your doctor's cutting back on your medications. And, and when you don't have the medication side effects, people feel a lot better too. That's amazing. I can attest to that. I mean, I, like you said, two weeks, it was, it was about that time. Well, yeah. once I ditched dairy and meat and went all in, two, three weeks, I felt like a different person. It has gradually gotten better to where I don't even feel like that same person. I reflect on some of the moments that I had and I'm, I can't even believe it was me. It's almost separate. It's well, that. you know, I have to say there's one other piece of this that is super surprising and that's that dairy products contain mild opiates. They're called casomorphins. And people didn't know they're there. They're named for casein, C-A-S-E-I-N. Casein is the milk protein. Mm -hmm. And when you turn milk into cheese, the casein is more concentrated. In your digestive tract, those casein molecules break apart to release what are called casomorphins, casein-derived morphine-like compounds. They are small molecules that are opiates. They're sort of weak narcotics. They go to the brain and attach to the very same receptor that morphine or heroin attach to. So in the same way that heroin is a downer, the casomorphins are much weaker. They're the most potent of them is called morphoceptin. It has about one-tenth the brain binding power compared to, to pharmacy-grade morphine. So it's not enough to get you arrested, but it's more than enough to be biologically accurate. And what we have found or what we believe is that that's a downer for people. They don't realize it, but they're eating all this, it's just a weak narcotics day after day after day, and it brings them down. But I got to tell you just the wildest thing. Researchers in Scandinavia discovered that when women have given birth, in maybe one in a thousand cases, they develop postpartum psychosis, where they just, they're hallucinating it and whatever. And the question is, why? You know, they had no history of psychological illness at all. They did spinal taps and they found casomorphins in their cerebral spinal fluid. In this case, it came not from what they were eating. It came because their body was now making breast milk because they had just given birth. Their body was making breast milk and that their own breast milk was breaking apart, releasing their own casomorphins, poisoning the brain. So we're then extrapolating from that research saying, well, what if you're not a woman who has just given birth? What if you're a 35-year-old guy, but you're dosing yourself every single day with casomorphins? We believe that it affects the brain. That's wild. Yeah, it's the most amazing thing. And people have no idea that this is the case. And casomorphins are there to presumably quiet a calf. You know, why would there be opiates in cow's milk? We believe they are there because, you know, milk is designed for a calf. It's got protein and sugar and all kinds of stuff and hormones, growth, growth factors. But it's got a little bit of this downer stuff, which we think is there to calm the calf. Milk does not do a body good. <laughs> It's a chemical cocktail that had only one purpose, and that was to make a calf grow really fast. And the fact that it's entered our culture and human beings consume cow's milk, it seems normal to us because we grew up with it. But Mother Nature is scratching her head saying, what the heck are you doing? You know. So people really don't have, maybe I'm off here, but a lactose intolerance, they have a, you know, they're not a baby cow. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, frankly, people who, are, who have lactose intolerance, they are the lucky ones. And that's normal. In fact, if you don't mind, let me just say a word about this. Please. Prior to 1965, lactose intolerance was thought to be rare. And what it means is that if you drink milk, you get diarrhea and bloating and you're sick and it varies. But it's, it can start 
anytime after about age five or six. And what it means is that the enzymes that digest the milk sugar lactose, the enzyme is gone. It's gone away. And in 1965, 66, right around in there, researchers in Baltimore started testing people. And they discovered that lactose intolerance isn't rare. It's rare in white people. It's only about 15% in white people. But in every other race, whether you're talking about African-Americans or Native Americans or Asians or, or anybody, it's the rule. It's almost everybody develops lactose intolerance. And in fact, also that's true of other species. Mother Nature gave you the enzymes to digest the milk sugar for while you're a nursing baby. And after you're weaned, you have no use for it anymore. But in dairying cultures 10,000 years ago, these were Europeans and people in the Middle East, there was a selective advantage for them to get rid of those enzymes so they could consume the milk. And presumably in times of starvation, they would have this little bit of nutrition. But for the vast majority of people, they don't have that. So anyway, in the 1960s, we started to realize that lactose intolerance is totally normal. But to this day, U.S. law, school lunch law, makes it illegal for a school to offer a milk alternative to a 16-year-old kid who's going through the lunch line. He says, I can't drink milk. If I do, I'm not going to offer football practice today because I'm going to be throwing it, you know, I'm going to be sick. They cannot, by law, they can't say, have some almond milk instead because you can digest that. It's been a, a dairy industry promotional thing where it's by law, they've got to give them dairy. That's tragic. It's it really is. It's, well, it's, it's racist to tell you the truth. And I, hate, I hesitate to use that word. And I don't mean that it was intentionally racist. It was intended to throw a bone to the dairy industry, but it is racist and it ought to stop. You know, there are organizations out there fighting the good fight. Balance.org is one, and there's several others that are out there fighting for new policy change and trying to change menus and institutions and schools. So let's hope they uh, are able to accomplish that. Well, you know, also, it's not just vegan type organizations. The American Medical Association a couple of years ago came out and said effectively that that law has to change. They said lactose intolerance is not a disease. Let's not punish these kids. So the consensus is there. It's just a question of whether we're going to be honest or whether we're going to be throwing... um, economic favors to one particular industry. Yeah, man. I hope that changes. I think it will. I think yeah, it's I, well, I think it will too. Yeah. I think it will, as long as we make noise about it. Let's keep it up. Let's keep yeah. making lots of noise. <laughs> so this next subject was very confusing to me when I switched over to whole food, plant-based diet, vegan lifestyle supplements. I mean, what ones do we need, if any, really? I was like, oh my gosh, I need B12. Where do I get enough iodine? All this stuff, it was a whirlwind of confusion. You look on the web, there's all kinds of misinformation. Can you set us straight on that? Sure. It's really pretty simple. A healthy diet is vegetables and fruits and whole grains and beans, yeah. and all the wonderful things they turn into. But you should take vitamin B12. You need it for healthy nerves and healthy blood. And you need very little. The recommended daily allowance is 2.4 micrograms. That's very little. But the funny thing is that it's not made by animals and B12 is not made by plants. It's made by bacteria. And presumably the reason that meat eaters get some is that there are bacteria in the intestinal tract of the cow that will make it. But even meat eaters sometimes have trouble absorbing it because you have to pull it off of the meat protein and that's not always easy for your digestion to do. And for vegans, they really need to supplement vitamin B12. So go to the store and just get the smallest B12 pill that they provide. You'll see them, they have 10,000 micrograms. You don't need that, you need 2.4. So if the smallest one you find is 50 or 100, get that one. Or any multiple vitamin that you ever took has B12 in it. Vitamin D, you need really only if you're not getting sun. If you live in equatorial Africa and the sun is hitting your skin all the time, you're getting nature's 
vitamin D. But if you had the bad judgment to move to North Dakota, which is where I grew up. <laughs> hey now, hey now, I know you're from Fargo, right? Exactly. You are, I'm, I'm just kidding about, that is where I grew up, but I'm kidding about anything negative I ever said about my hometown. Um, <laughs> you're not getting sunlight much of the time. And so you need a vitamin D supplement. About 2000 IUs a day is good. Iodine, your thyroid gland needs iodine. But to tell you the truth, the two easy sources are just iodized salt you know, the little blue canister from the Morton Salt Company with a girl in the umbrella, that, yeah, iodine, yeah. that iodized salt, that's got all the iodine you're going to need probably. Or my favorite source is seaweeds, which I never ate when I was a kid growing up. But you go to a sushi bar, the nori sushi, the nori seaweed that's around yeah. the sushi, that's mm -hmm. all seaweeds are loaded with iodine. Now, don't have the fish sushi, have the cucumber roll or the sweet potato roll or the asparagus roll, but you'll get plenty of iodine from that too. So how much do you really need? Because I'm very cognizant of how much salt I take into my body. I want to make sure that I stay, you know, uh, oh, yeah. no more than 1,500 milligrams a day. I mean, how much of the Morton's iodized salt do you really need a day? Oh, very little. About a, very little. If you took a teaspoon and divided it by about a third, that's mm -hmm. about a third of a teaspoon. So it's very little. Now, I have to say, when you're eating at a restaurant, they often don't use iodized salt. Yeah. And if, if you're getting Himalayan salt or sea salt or kosher salt, they're not iodized unless it says so on the label. Yeah. You know, I, after I listened, I actually listened to your book on audio because I'm always, I'm on the go and I wanted to make sure I got it in. So anyone out there, by the way, if you don't have time to read it, you can listen to it. So thank you for making an audible addition to that. And when I heard you talk about that, I freaked out a little because I'm, I'm constantly riding my bike. I'm sweating a lot and there's a lot of fatigue. I'm like, I wonder if it's not, if it's because I don't have enough iodine in my diet and I need to start incorporating that. And I have since then, and I, I'm feeling a little better. Yeah. And some people will take iodine pills, but most people do not need them. The amount you need is 150 micrograms a day, which is really tiny. So most people don't need that. But the bigger reason for thyroid disorders, as we were describing a little bit earlier, was is an antibody reaction to unhealthy foods. And in your body imbalance, I talk about a man named Mike, who is a, mm -hmm. neurosur he's a neurosurgeon in North Carolina and a, a really active guy. But he was noticing he was gaining a little weight and energy, not quite what it normally was. And he was hypothyroid. And like all doctors, he neglected his health. And after about five years, his own doctor said, Mike, you, you are hypothyroid. You know, let's start a supplement, a thyroid supplement, which you're, you're going to end up being on forever. And he instead went to a completely plant-based diet and he lost the weight. His energy came back. And what I think is happening in that case is not that he's necessarily getting more iodine because he might've been getting enough iodine already from salt or seaweed or whatever, but he's now knocking out that antibody reaction. So his thyroid is recovering. And so for anybody who feels kind of dumpy, out of sorts, not doing well, yeah. you could get tested and uh, thyroid hormone could be the reason. That's amazing. So we're going to set this thing down here, but before we close it out, I have to ask you, when you're speaking with your other medical colleagues about nutrition, are they surprised about what you've discovered and what nutrition can do? They are. And I have to say it's unfortunate because, um, yeah. because nutrition is not only very often our most powerful tool that we have. It actually goes to the cause of many illnesses. Take diabetes. When we started to see that diabetes was, for many patients, a completely reversible condition, doctors didn't believe it because we weren't used to that. And so doctors thought, you got diabetes, we got to start you on metformin, eventually you're going to be on insulin. And that was the mindset. That still may be true for some people. But on the other hand, if we change our diet, we can get our natural, our body's normal insulin working better. So we've been pushing now, we have a, a bill in Washington, D.C., in the city council that would mandate, catch this, mandate that doctors know something about nutrition. And we're getting a, <laughs> we're getting a little resistance, but I think- Can you say that again? Because that's, 
unbelievable. Well, right now in medical school, nutrition is not a required topic. And there isn't any medical school that I'm aware of that really does a good job with it. And then doctors have to have continuing medical education after medical school to stay current. But there is no state in the United States that requires that any of that continuing education have anything to do with nutrition. Now, that would be defensible if a high cholesterol level didn't have anything to do with the bacon you're eating for breakfast. It would be defensible if cancer had nothing to do with diet or if diabetes had nothing to do with diet. But the fact of the matter is 70 or 80% of patients who come in to just about any primary care clinic in the United States and elsewhere, they've got a problem that started with food. And if doctors don't understand how to deal with food, they are selling the patients short. In our clinic, the Barnard Medical Center in Washington, D.C., it's a regular primary care. But when patients come in, we always look at what they're eating. And the patients love it because suddenly it's a partnership between the doctor and the patient. We're going to work together to tackle the cause of your illness. And it's just the way to practice medicine. That's beautiful. I love that it's a collaborative effort. And that's how it should be, quite frankly. Absolutely. Well, we're going to wrap this up, but is there anything you'd like to add before we, we set this thing down? Did I, I know there's a lot in your book, and I, obviously I can't get to all of it, so I encourage everyone to go pick it up. But is there anything you'd like to add before we set this down? Only, I would encourage people to do two things. Number one, focus on the short term. Let's say you're dealing with menstrual cramps. If fertility issues are something for you, any hormone-related condition, focus on the short term. Think, let me just change my diet now and see what I can do. Because if you think, well, forever and ever and ever, I'm never going to have another double bacon cheeseburger. That's too daunting. Focus on the short term. Try a diet change. Do it in a big way and see if you don't feel better. And then be bold. The diet changes we're talking about are not just little adjustments to your health. It's a chance to revolutionize how you feel. And not just how you feel physically, but how you feel about the world that you're in and the way that foods play a role in it. So have fun with it. Focus just on day by day what you're going to eat but be bold, see where you can go. I love it. That's great advice. I appreciate that. Well, Dr. Bernard, I sincerely appreciate your time. You are a living legend. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time and we really, everyone just loves your work. Thank you for all that you do to contribute to humanity and make this world a better place. I sincerely mean that. Oh, well, thank you. Mind-blowing, right? I say it a lot on my show and it holds true here as well. Being a person on a purpose-filled mission is one that pays you back tenfold. I love the fact that Dr. Barnard is out speaking and educating others on ways to improve their overall health. What Dr. Barnard and his entire team is doing to positively impact the lives of others is a mission that I proudly stand with. To dedicate your life to helping those that may never even realize the extent of how much you've had an impact, or to help those that may never be able to pay you back, is absolute altruism. If you aren't already, I invite you to try a whole food plant-based diet. As you just heard, the evidence is sound and the research is out there for you to read. I hope you learned some new information by listening to Dr. Barnard. Be sure to check out the links in my show notes to find out more about his work and how you can pick up a copy of his latest book, Your Body in Balance. That's all for this episode, but please join me next week because the executive director from Farmer's Footprint joins me and we talk biodiversity and regenerative agriculture. Until then, peace, love, and plants. Plants.